0: it will be useful to <laughs> So now we can take a look at the... And I mentioned last week that this is a Tibetan version because even though it was evidently quite common um, in India, either right at the time of the Buddha or shortly after the time of the Buddha, uh, it got lost uh, through the invasions that happened and causes and conditions. I mentioned last week that there was an ancient text that is at least a couple thousand years old where they talk about the wheel. There's nothing in the Pali Canon where the Buddha's actually using the word wheel to describe this way. of I mean, he talked about dependent origination all the time. It's one of the central themes that he used to uh, teach the Dhamma. Teachings of liberation, but he didn't actually use the wheel. But the, they evidently, the scholars date this text, this Buddhist text, for uh, be over two thousand years old. So, who knows exactly when? Perhaps at the time of the Buddha, this text reports it as if the Buddha was involved with this, and they tell a story when the Buddha was at Rajagaha, at the bamboo grove at the squirrels' feeding place. That was a common place for the monks, and uh, maybe non-Zen others to practice. Um, and the Buddha noticed that uh, a lot of people were gathered around Venerable Mogalana, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And the Buddha asked what was going on. He asked, I think, Ananda, what was going on? Like, why were they going to see Venerable Maha Moggallana? And I guess it was not just the monks, but also uh, nuns and lay people were coming to see Moggallana. Now the illustrious enlightened one, who knows, also known as the Buddha, asks questions. Thus the Lord Buddha asked Venerable Ananda why the second of his foremost disciples were surrounded by the four assemblies, monks, nuns, uh, female and male lay people and Ananda responded uh, that he instructed discontented practitioners with success. So, when anybody had students that were discontented, they'd send them to Mogalana, Venerable Maha Moggallana, because he was really good, and because he was known um, for his psychic abilities, so he would go visit the different realms of existence, so it said. And uh, And then he could report, he could sort of bring up this uh, experience. Because remember, I think the first night I reviewed, and then also in the fall fall course, we talked more about this insight the Buddha had under the Bodhi tree. So I described it as like seeing the movement of all things, basically waking up to the movement, the process of dependent origination or co-arising. But specifically it's reported in terms of Seeing that intentions matter in terms of birth, death, rebirth, death, rebirth. I mean, anyway, you get the picture. That how we live, how we think, how we act, what we say, it has consequences on how things unfold. And you can imagine that if somebody with a lot of presence, a lot of charisma, and you sat down in front of that person and she or he could... Describe to you in a very compelling way that what you're doing has real implications. And painting a picture of like really bad things that could happen and really good things that could happen, we would get motivated. In the same way, we'd be motivated if somebody said, you know, with great precision, or weather people said, we're going to be under six feet of water in 48 hours we would get motivated. You know, we would start doing something. And so this is the, the sense that this uh, that the story is coming out of that. People have recognized that Mogalana's ability, his psychic abilities, and his, uh allowed him to help paint a picture for people that it really matters what you do with this life. Not to be complacent. Not to think it's nice, good enough rather, just not to be killing people, or not to be actively stealing, but to uh, get interested in exploring the nth degree of dana, of generosity, of living and giving—I mean, receiving and giving freely—the nth degree of non-harming, and the nth degree of developing the mind, the, the balance of mind. And the thing is, this isn't a pain in the butt, as the Buddha says and uh, I think it's the Kalama Sutta right at the beginning of that famous discourse he says this practice is good in the beginning the middle and the end so as we develop dana, sila, bhavana develop the mind develop our integrity develop our generosity it feels good right in the beginning if it doesn't feel good we're not doing something right it should feel good it should enliven our life it should liberate us as we're developing the practice and so, but you know, we put it off because we, we have part of our delusion is to think we can do it later. You know, our conditions would be better later. Or we have some story that my life is difficult, which it is for all of us, some more than others probably, or definitely, but it doesn't really matter. We should still do what, whatever we can do. Because it matters. And so the Buddha getting what was going on and, and kind of appreciating. What was going on? You know, you, the happiness of an enlightened person—that's kind of an interesting thing to speculate about. But you can imagine the one thing that would make an enlightened person who's already feeling pretty happy happier is seeing people engaged in activities that's leading to the happiness that he or she is experiencing. That would make them happy. In the same way that you could imagine, you know, a parent observing their child doing things, getting engaged in activities that's going to lead to their safety and well-being for a long time. They feel really good. So in the same way, so here's what the Buddha says. Uh, <clears throat> the elder Mogalana or a practitioner like him, cannot be at many places at the same time for teaching people. Therefore, in the monastery gateways, a wheel having five sections should be made. Now this... He's talking about the realms of existence, the sort of middle circle. And uh, here, this is a Tibetan version. So they have six because they created, they added this, the titans, the warring gods, which is in the upper right corner, I think. Yeah, upper right corner. I know these aren't that good, but we'll talk about them in a minute. But he, So he's saying this, but just five. So you have the lower realms, which is the hell realm, right at the base, and then on the right side, you have the hungry ghosts. On the left side, you have the animal realm. Those are the relatively unfortunate realms. And the relatively fortunate realms, we have the human realm. And in this depiction, we have the human realm. On one side, the warring gods. On the other, and then on top, the celestial realm. Sort of angelic beings. The uh, Pali word is Dewas. <coughs> Therefore, in the monastery gateway, a wheel having five sections should be made. Thus the Buddha laid down that a wheel with five sections should be made, whereupon it was remarked, but the practitioners do not know what sort of wheel should be made. And then the Buddha explained, the five realms should be represented, the hellish, the animal, ghosts, humans, and gods, or devas. The lower portion of the wheel, and he goes on to describe, like where each of the realms should be. And then he says, and not in the Tibetan, but in the original one, the four continents should also be depicted. So this is, the, you know, from the Indian from that time they thought of four continents, India being one, and then three others. And then he said, the Buddha said, in the middle, greed, aversion, and delusion must be shown. A dove symbolizing greed, which later became a cock, a rooster. and then uh, uh, let's see a snake uh, representing anger, a hog or a boar representing delusion. Furthermore, the Buddha, the Buddhas are to be painted surrounded by their halos, pointing out the way to Nibana. So you see up on the upper right the Buddha pointing to the hare, the rabbit, but it's really the moon. And uh, the moon represents coolness, the coolness of renunciation. And the Buddha also said, ordinary beings should be shown as by the contrivance of a water will. So now we're looking at the second circle. The inner circle is the rooster, (coughs) the snake, and the boar, each biting the one in front of its tail. So that's the That's really the core of this cycle is the force of greed, anger, and delusion. It's the basic description of uh, arising out of misperception or the basic movement that arises out of the misperception, seeing, taking things personally. Did you not get a copy, Judy? Oh, that's okay. We've got extras. So that second one, this is that water wheel the Buddha's talking about. And the idea is a, is a kind of recycling. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a celestial being, as long as you're in the mouth of impermanence, that's this fierce beast that is holding the whole wheel with his claws and his jaw. That beast represents the, the truth of impermanence. The yama, sometimes is, it's called. Yama is also a, probably originally from the Hindu tradition but then adopted by Buddhism later um, but just the, the God of death or the Lord of death of impermanence that everything comes and goes so whether, wherever you are in any of these realms you're always recycling and that, that's this tumbling. and so you can go from a celestial realm all the way down to a hell realm and you can work up from the hell realms up to the higher realms And because there are teachings on dependent origination, there is a way of being free of this process of suffering. So it's very easy to start thinking about this, you know, when you get realms of existence and we'll go into it in a little bit more detail. And it's, from our point of view, we're going to want to start thinking about it as a description of a material world, you know, like... Because, but we have to realize that that's not the way the Buddha is teaching. There isn't like inside and outside. There's only this. And even from our current limited understanding, this is a mind experience. Right? Whatever this is, it's arising in our mind. And whether there's an external or something outside of this it's a question for philosophers, it's not really relevant because what we always know is this, which is the mind's experience. It's the mind's reflection or the mind's understanding or the mind's conception. But that's what this is. We only have that. We, whenever, like when I think, well, you guys are out there, that's a thought being known in my mind, right? So we... And I'm not saying that you guys aren't out there. But I'll never know. All I know is that there's seeing being known here in my mind. And then there's this interpretation of what's being seen happening here in my mind. So it makes it easy then when we're looking at this and we're kind of uh, developing our comprehension of this description of this co-dependent arising, this process of being that we're really talking about this psycho-physical thing we call our life this experience of this we're not talking about something abstract that we could you know if we just had a telescope we'd see it all or something so the idea is that because of the force of of greed aversion and delusion There is this constant recycling. There is no stability anywhere in this process. So this is samsara. Samsara really is pointing specifically to that there isn't any solidity or any permanence. Let me just finish with... uh, Uh, the Buddha says now again this isn't from the Pali Canon this is from a text several hundred years after the time of the Buddha the space around the rim should be filled with scenes teaching the twelve links of dependent arising in the forward and reversed order right so that's you can see just starting right uh, to the right of the mouth that's a blind man or a blind person and that's representing the link of ignorance And then the next one, we went through these links before, but we'll go through them a little several times tonight. And then the next one, karmic formations. So there you have a potter and this idea of an activity that has results. So volitional formations or karmic formations, sankharas, really have to do with the impressions in the mind. So both the dispositions that we carry because of previous conditioning But when those conditions, or those tendencies rather, come to the surface, then we call them intentions, like I'm about to do something because of an intention, and then we act on them, sort of move into action. So the volitional formations really talk about this movement into action, and having this movement into action is the cause for consciousness, which is the next one, and it's depicted by a monkey jumping from branch to branch. And so this is the nature in this realm, or in this kind of experience of suffering, you'll notice that the consciousness is constantly uh, there with the next sense contact. And consciousness, in a sense, is dependent. It's always got to be there for the next sense experience. So sometimes, in some passages, the Buddha talks about restricted and unrestricted consciousness, Doug, would you turn the ventilation back on? And if we start, uh, have time for discussion, we can shut it back down again. So we have the active monkey, his consciousness. In the next, we have two people in a boat, mind and body, Yama Rupa. with the mind being the leader. So I think in uh, some depictions, maybe this one, there's one person, you know, standing in the back of the boat with the pole, getting to decide where to go, and the other person is just a passive person. So mind and body, mind being the leader. If you have a mind and body, then you have sensitivity. And you have sensitivity through these six sense gates, which is depicted as a house with six... Uh, openings, five windows and one door, as you see in this depiction. If you're sensitive in these six ways, you're going to have contact, which is depicted as an embrace. That's contact. If you have contact, because of our conditioning, there will be a feeling associated with all sense contacts. And it's, yeah, you can see it's depicted in a pretty graphic way as an arrow in the eye. Ouch. Because sometimes sense contact really hurts. And sometimes it makes a huge impact, but because it's pleasant and we're so seduced or uh, moved by the pleasantness of a sense experience. Without wisdom, when we have feeling without wisdom, then there will be craving. And craving the difference between craving and the next one, which is grasping or clinging, is craving is the beginning. So here it's depicted as somebody being thirsty. But we haven't really acted on the thirst. It's just the presence of thirst. But then when we actually begin to act on the thirst, then you have grasping. It's depicted by a person taking, grabbing fruit, putting in a basket. So now the mind is actively acting on its craving. Craving then leads to Becoming. Because when we've made volitional action, we have set something in motion. So the karmic fruits have been set in motion. And it's depicted as somebody being pregnant. So something's going to happen. There's no going back, you know, because the person is impregnated. There are seeds have been planted. Those seeds will have results, which is the next picture of birth. And death is the last one. So these are the... And, and this, the last one, is really aging and death. And it's just the... Uh, really pointing to suffering. So it's really representing suffering in this. So we have ignorance, mental formations, consciousness, mind and body, six sense gates, contact, feeling, craving... Clinging or grasping, becoming, sometimes translated as being, birth, aging, illness, death, or suffering, you could say, and then again, ignorance. is not done yet, so on the outer ring, you should have the 12 links of dependent origination. And then he says, The picture of the wheel must show clearly that everything, all the time, is swallowed by impermanence. And the following two verses should be added as an inscription. So this ancient text says that the Buddha said this, Make a start, leave behind the wandering on, firmly concentrate upon these teachings. As he, the Buddha, leader, like an elephant, did rout... Nalagiri. so should you rout and defeat the hosts of death the causes of death whoever in this practice will go this way ever vigilant and always striving hard can make an end of dukkha here and leave behind samsara's wheel of birth and death and then you know there's always these picky things and later um you know, they asked they ask the Buddha, well, what happens if people come to the monastery and see that and they don't know what it is? And so then the Buddha said, you know, well, you should give somebody who stands there to greet visitors and explains it. A competent iku, a competent practitioner, should be appointed to explain the wheel. five skulls on top of the the beast head or the five aggregates this mind and body so before we go on any questions about the this painting this map uh, that includes dependent origination includes greed, anger and delusion create, uh, crea- uh, includes the idea of this ever cycling on or samsara includes the idea of some, um, the different realms that basically this, you know, if you don't like this idea of the different realms of hell and heaven and human realm, animal realm and the idea of rebirth even within this lifetime you know, because of causes and conditions we do cycle through really bad times. We do cycle through really hopefully if you're fortunate enough really good times and mediocre times in between times. And sometimes when we feel like we have a lot of power, we're like warring gods. And sometimes we feel like we're in one of the icy hells or hot hells. There's all kinds of descriptions. I've, I put another link up, by the way, today. Last week I had that link with the interactive guide to, the, to this map. I don't know. Did anybody check it out?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, good. So right in that same page, I have added another link today, which is this wonderful little book. The Wheel of Birth and Death by Viku Hantipalo and uh, you can read it in PDF form including the, they have uh, different versions of these maps one that he drew himself in a more modern way that you can't see it too well online but you can, you'll get a sense of it there so any questions? yeah, Karen first um, what is the, around the... the the rooster, snake and boar Oh, that's that recycling of samsara. So, you see, beings, they, the Buddha wanted, them, um, according to that text, wanted the math, this teaching, to depict that even if you get to the celestial realms, and even if you have a really life, long life there, you have to leave it, because anything in the realm of birth and death is subject to change. So you can, you're not safe anywhere in this mechanism. And so you see people tumbling out of heaven, and you see people rising out of hell. So hell is not eternal in this idea, nor is heaven eternal. It's a constant cycling, cycling, cycling for endless time, until the mind realizes what it hasn't realized or understands what's going on, Louise. Okay. Um, so
1: freedom or outside of this picture? Or yeah. Yeah, it's outside of this picture. That's why the Buddha,
0: and I think, maybe I didn't read it, but I think the Buddha states uh, specifically that the Buddha has to be outside of this. And it, we're really pointing to the Buddha's mind, you know, the mind of an enlightened being is outside of this. And that's the Buddha pointing to the moon. So the Buddha is the one who points to the moon. The moon or the other you know as in another another enlightened mind a mind that is not is no longer confused by this the machinery of birth and death the machinery of liking and disliking but remember it doesn't necessarily mean that this process isn't going on so we're talking about a psychological transformation or, or a purification of our view of what this is so, there may be still something here, but the view has radically changed about what this is. And in that, in that radical change, then the heart is no longer pushed around by the movement of life, you could say, or what comes and goes. And we know this experience, again, it's really important as you reflect on this, and again, we've got a lot of weeks left, which is great, because this is a subtle teaching and there's a lot of, a lot to it, just even on a conceptual level, there's a lot to it. But we want to keep uh, thinking or reflecting on this in terms of our actual experience. And so we know that sometimes we have, to some degree, begun to step out or begun to realize some freedom from the mechanisms of good and bad, this and that, the churning of our heart, the mind's involvement in the things that are coming and going. Sometimes you're definitely right in the middle of it and everything that's happening is throwing the heart about and sometimes there's some freedom. So we already know this movement towards freedom, movement towards uh, a total identification with the movements of our life, the ups and downs of our life. And that's what I was i was trying to point to when I shared earlier, you know, like in my practice this afternoon, and uh, the different thoughts and the different experiences that came and went, you know, worries about this, thoughts about that, and, uh, and just really noticing the differences uh, between when the mind was identified with what I was thinking about as a personal problem that I had to do, to a sense of freedom, like whatever happens will be okay. That happiness isn't a function of how things unfold. And that's really where we're going. Is like, can we live a life where our happiness isn't a function about how things unfold? When we sit, you know, in our formal practice. We're not trying to feel good. It's great when we do feel good, but it's not about feeling good. Even though sometimes in meditation practice there are really pleasant experiences that arise. And of course sometimes not so pleasant experiences arise. But we're trying to realize a freedom regardless of whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. So in a sense, that's pleasant. To be independent of whether things are pleasant or unpleasant is its own kind of... I mean, this is language, but... It's okay to say, yeah, that would be really nice. That would be really pleasant. In a way, freedom is the ultimate pleasantness. Not needing pleasantness is the ultimate pleasantness. Not being concerned, not having a mind that's concerned with pleasant and unpleasant, that freedom is the ultimate freedom or pleasantness or happiness. But it's not the normal use of the word happiness or pleasant.
1: Did you ever... Yeah. Actually very just three things that I'd like to say about this and let's answer the question. the first thing is that I am really glad to have this because in the olden days when I looked at this prior to you doing it, I thought, wow, this is really a primitive religion. <laughs> <laughs> people <think just laughs> it. And like the dominant Devilish looking monster. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second thing I, I like, uh, so I like that I understand it now. And the other thing is that this, this being, that, what do you call this major being? Like, Yama. Yama. That Yama is like, yeah, you know, I wake up feeling like that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then all these cool little pictures in it makes it so much easier for you to remember all this stuff. So it's really a fascinating, wonderful thing. I'm just going to get this. And I'm wondering how you take this into technical class.
0: But you can teach impermanence to children. I mean, that's one of the... Impermanence. You know, the depiction of impermanence as a monster comes from a relative point of view, where from a relative point of view, we're spending all of our life energy to deny impermanence. And so because that's... We're... From a self point of view, permanence is all that matters. We want a permanent grounding for self. And so the force of impermanence, the truth of impermanence is the most frightening thing for us. And it's also that way for children. Like when they're really wanting to stay and then the parent says, Honey, we gotta go home. Have you seen how kids can react at times? I mean, it's as if you're killing them sometimes. And they fight, as if they're gonna die. Like, "I oh, know you can't make me kind of thing. I mean, really hitting even hitting their parents sometimes. So change is hard for us losing what we like not getting what we want these are hard things for us so you don't need to scare kids and you know you also have to understand this is the tibetan version and tibetan buddhism i think partly because of just cultural reasons and the existing uh, religion of bonism that was there in tibet before buddhism got brought up from india it was very colorful and very rich and intricate and, you know, had this very developed cosmology. And so, Buddhism is quite adaptable like it did when it went into China with Taoism and here now in the West with Western psychology. So, it just incorporated a lot of those cultural tendencies, I think. And so you get, you know, this is, uh, it's very interesting. And when you, the color versions are just so engaging. I mean, go online and just put in Wheel of Life and Death and you'll get some beautiful, uh, I don't know if they call them yatras, but these wheels of life but with very rich colors. And all the colors have meaning too. You know, we haven't even spent any time talking about the realms of existence. Maybe we'll go back a little bit more next week. But, what we will do next week and I'll encourage you to do this week, I'll send out one more link which is called Versions of Conditional Origination and this monk just took from the different discourses because the Buddha would recommend people go through this um, chain this direction and this direction and with this point of view and that point of view and I just encourage you to just sit on your couch in your meditation place wherever you want or while you're walking just move your mind through these and reflect on each one as a way to illuminate what's happening here remember that's what it's all about is to help get a a different sense a different understanding of what's moving here and now the conditional unfolding of it and how you know just to kind of give you a little highlight of next week you know just there's many ways to look at this but on the right side we have the mind and body the five aggregates and we practice the four foundations of mindfulness. We practice being mindful of the mind and body, right? That is our practice. We're waking up, we're paying attention to the mind and body. That's everything from uh, mental formations, which we can pay attention to, consciousness, which we can pay attention to, uh, mind and body, six sense gates, contact, and even craving. We can pay attention to all of those things. They all arise in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is just a fancy way of saying the mind and body. On the other side, from craving to suffering, we have the aggregate of suffering. We have the results of either being mindful with wisdom or not. And when we're not mindful, when there isn't wisdom, then the aggregate of suffering is put in motion. The, The person that experiences suffering gets that emotion from craving to grasping to becoming birth and death the cycles of happiness and unhappiness over and over again so you can just sort of notice you know we can practice and when we don't practice we end up being the one who suffers being the one who has stress being the one who doesn't like this wants things to be other than they are we'll come back so let's just take a few seconds let go of the words. Take a breath together, relaxing in the jaws of impermanence, trusting. Knowing that fear isn't the way out. Negligence or ignoring this isn't the way out. Being interested. Maybe this is the way toward real happiness. So, wishing us all a week of real interest. Thanks for coming, everyone. A number of things coming up you can check out. um, one thing, I'll be doing a workshop on um, right livelihood, status, wealth, income, and I'm hoping people bring their own experiences and wisdom to that so that we can have a really fruitful day together reflecting on right livelihood, reflecting on status, reflecting on money and wealth, and our relationship to all of these things and how so, so much suffering is born out of these things. and what we can learn from it. So that's not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. We do have a half-day retreat this coming Saturday. And uh, Chaz uh, will be teaching. He's leading the PCBC retreat in a couple of weeks. And then Friday, I think it's the 15th or 14th. No, I think it's the 13th. Friday evening, the 13th, he'll be speaking at Common Ground. And then later in the month, Judith Regier will be giving our guest teacher talks. So we have a couple Guest teachers coming up in the next month, and then um, Santikara will be here that second weekend in March. Friday night talk, day long on Saturday, and a conversation for the 12-step community on Sunday. So, got a a nice lineup of visiting teachers. Any other announcements for the community, people have? Anybody want to be cook for the April residential retreat? Lee is looking for somebody you can let us know. We'll pass your name out to Lee Rosenberg. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.